like I should be better at golf than I am. And I went one afternoon, and there was literally no one out there except for a guy. And he was teeing off on the whole opposite of me, but we were on the same tee. It's kind of hard to explain. I was going this way. He was going the other way. And he hit 10 or 11 golf balls from the tee. He was just practicing. And all of them just landed onto the green, one by one, just plump, plump, onto the green. And I asked him, I said, how did you do that? And I got the impression he might be like a pro amateur and go to some different tournaments. And he said, golf is all about confidence. You just need confidence and you're going to get the ball into the green. And so I thought from that, I said, I just need confidence. I just need confidence in hitting the golf ball. And so I left from there about a week or two later on my next day off. I went to a golf course, actually the one out here in Samaria. And I decided all I need is confidence and I'm going to hit the golf ball. And I lost every ball that I had in my bag. I had probably 12 to 13 balls in my bag that I collected. In fact, I found two more balls that day. I hit them into the lake. I hit them into the woods. I hit them at other golfers and apologize for that. Confidence was not the key to me being good at golf. The problem was I just wasn't any good. Okay. A lot of people talk about confidence in work, school, and athletics, and other ventures. Society right now is pushing a lot of self-confidence. It's pushing people to believe in themselves, believe in your heart. And yet, much like my golfing experience, sometimes confidence in self doesn't lead to a good outcome. Sometimes you hit every ball that you have into the woods. And while society is pushing us to be confident in ourselves, to have these happy endings, to have this optimism, sometimes we can take this and we can lose confidence in God. We try to put all the confidence into who we are, who we're, what we are made to do, when we're really not putting any confidence in the Lord. We trust in our own abilities. And even as Christians, we can struggle with this sometimes. Even as a pastor, I can struggle with this. And other, I see other pastors do this, where sometimes we can put confidence so much in ourselves that we stop trusting in the Lord. As we see Paul in Corinth this morning, we see a man who really demonstrates a lot of confidence. Have you ever read the book of Acts and just thought, I don't know how Paul did all the things that he did, how he could preach in the way that he did, how he could stand up to people, confront people, defend the gospel. He's just a man that demonstrates a lot of confidence. And the question becomes, does Paul sometimes lose confidence? Is Paul afraid every now and then? Does Paul need to be reminded to trust in the Lord? And I think we see this morning that Paul does. Paul does need confidence in the Lord. God does remind Paul not to fear, but to trust in him and to depend on him. And this morning, if Paul needs to be reminded to trust in God and find his confidence in him, then I think we need to be reminded of that as well. Sometimes as we're trying to do God's will, as we're trying to witness to others, as we're trying to serve the Lord, we can doubt, we can have fear, we can become anxious, we can grow frustrated when things don't go our way, the way that we planned everything out to be. We lose our confidence in God. When we trust in ourselves, we'll face burnout, we'll come to the end of ourselves. It can even lead to anxiety and depression and all sorts of other issues. God calls us to be faithful to himself and to his word. And when we do that, we can find our confidence in him and we can not fear in the circumstances of the world. And so that's what I want us to see this morning. It's that we can be confident in God as we share his word. 
The thing that we're sharing is God's word. We're not sharing ourselves. We've talked about that, especially in the last couple of weeks. The word of God is what we want to present to other people. It's not something that I came up with. It's not something that you came up with. It's God's word. It's been here way before any of us were born. It's going to be here way after any of us die. So we want to share God's word and we can be confident in God himself, knowing that he'll never leave us or forsake us. So why can we be confident in God? I think we see four different reasons for that this morning. The first is this. God controls the people of our ministry. God controls the people of our ministry. Look with me at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Last week we saw Paul in Athens. He was defending the gospel. He was doing something that I like to call apologetics, defending the faith, giving an answer, not apologizing like we think of it, defending the faith, giving an answer for why he believes what he believes. He leaves from Athens and goes to Corinth. It was about 40 miles west of Athens, and it was a prosperous city in Greek. Now, you can see there, maybe on the map, if you get a paper one, you can probably see it better. There's two different seaports on both sides of Corinth. One of them we'll see later in this passage. Because of that, Corinth was a key city for trade, marketing. It had a lot of wealth. And in fact, if you've ever read the book of 1 Corinthians or even 2 Corinthians, it's not necessarily an an encouraging book. But Paul has a lot of rebuke that he gives the Corinthians. He has a lot of things in the church that he needs to address. They were fighting over communion. They were fighting over marriage and divorce. There was a man in the church that was having an extramarital affair with his stepmother. There were all these different problems in the church of Corinth that Paul was trying to address and deal with and you wonder why is that well it could have just been the people in the city but part of that was that the city was very wealthy and not only was the city very wealthy it attracted a lot of different people from different trades people who wanted to sell things people who wanted to promote things because it had these seaports on both sides a lot of people went to the city were involved in the city it was a multi-ethnic city there in Greece. So it led to a lot of issues for Corinth. Now, when we look here at Paul visiting the city of Corinth, we see in verse 2 that he meets two different people. Look at verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So we meet two people, Aquila and Priscilla. Now, just like Luke likes to do, he likes to introduce someone to us who's actually going to be more important later in the book. And we're seeing that with Aquila and Priscilla. Paul meets them. He gets to know them. He hears their background. We're going to see them show up later in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters as well. Aquila was a native of Pontus, which was near the Black Sea, but apparently he had been living in Rome, which was the capital of the Roman Empire. Now, there's a phrase there that says they'd had to leave Italy because Claudius had commanded the Jews to leave Rome. Claudius was the emperor of Rome. He was in control of the Roman Empire. And during this time, there were a lot of Jews living in Rome, but there were some Christians that were coming there as well, and there was some fighting going on. In fact, there was some rioting from the Jews because people were preaching that Jesus is the Christ. And so with all this tension and turmoil, Claudius says, you know what, all the Jews are going to leave Rome. And this isn't the first time a Roman emperor did this. Tiberius did this about 20 years earlier. And so the Roman emperor Claudius says all the Jews are going to leave Rome. And so that pushes Aquila and Priscilla over to Corinth where they just happen to meet Paul. 
Now you might ask, how did they meet Paul? It could have just been a chance meeting, but actually we should look at verse 3. It says, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. This tells us something about Aquila and Priscilla and Paul and their background. Sometimes you wonder, how did Paul support himself? What did he do? Was he just a missionary? Now, he did get monetary support from people, kind of like we would support missionaries today. But Paul actually worked. He did something called tent making. Now, this was making tents and making different housing units for people. But it also has ties to leatherworking and making clothing for people as well. So Paul was a man of many talents. Now, why was he a tent maker? Because Paul had been trained as a Jew and trained as a rabbi, most of the rabbis had been trained to be tent makers. This was actually something that they were trained to do as well because the rabbis weren't paid by the synagogue. They had to support themselves, and then they taught God's word on the side. So tent making wasn't just something Paul took on, but he'd been trained to do this as a rabbi, and now he uses it as a missionary. And Aquila and Priscilla did this too. And so Corinth was not just a place that they could evangelize and share the gospel with. It was also a place where people would buy their tents. And so Paul goes there and he sells his tents and sells his leather that he's making. He does this with Aquila and Priscilla. They get connected and Paul ends up staying with them. Look at verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. So what do you see Paul doing? We see him doing what he's always doing. He's going to the synagogue. It's his normal practice. He's reasoning with them. He's trying to persuade them, convince them that Jesus is the Christ. Why did he start with the Jewish people? Because they knew who God was. They had a connection with God. And he just needed to show them that the Messiah they'd been expecting was Jesus who had come. And so we see he's arguing in the synagogue. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that, the Christ, that Jesus was the Christ, or that the Christ was Jesus. Remember, all the way back in Acts 17, Silas and Timothy were left in Macedonia. I think they ministered, they helped the churches there in Thessalonica, in Berea, and even in Philippi. So they went to these different churches that we've seen in Acts chapters 16 and 17. And finally, because Paul had to leave quickly from Berea, because there was a threat to his life, he went to Athens by himself. So we see them reconnect here in Corinth. And I get the impression they're going to find Paul, but Paul is too busy. He's occupied. He is absorbed, I think is a great way you can translate that word. Paul is absorbed with sharing the word of God. How many of you are people that you can just get into something and when you're into something, you're focused and you're zoned out. It's like nothing else matters to you. You're just focused on one task. This is what Paul's doing. He is absorbed in sharing the word of God. And so he's doing this. He's testifying to these Jews that Jesus is the Christ, that he is who he says he is. And look at verse 6. And when they opposed him and reviled him. Now pay attention to those two words for just a moment. He's absorbed with sharing the word, and he's both opposed and reviled. To be opposed is to have an uprising. In fact, the verb means to rise up or to go upward in a way. There is this uprising against Paul in one verb. And the other verb in Greek actually comes from the word we get for blasphemy. 
So whether or not they were blaspheming God, to blasphemy someone is a strong slander, but it's especially used of God. It's when someone slanders God, and it is a very vile and antagonistic word. We see that throughout the Gospels where people blaspheme God. So they are at least strongly slandering Paul, but they're also probably slandering Jesus here as well. Whatever this opposition was, it enraged Paul and it made him so angry. Look at what he does. It says he shook out his garments. Now, we see this actually in the Gospels, and maybe some of you can recognize that from the Gospels where Jesus says, if they reject you in a certain city, kick the dust off of your feet and go on to the next town. This actually also has references to the Old Testament prophets as well. They would go to the town. They would say, if you don't repent in so many days, judgment is going to come. And if a city did not listen to them, they would shake the dust off their feet or shake their garments. They would go to the next town. It was a symbol that you're done with these people, that you're moving on to the next group of people. And that's what Paul does. And notice what he says. He says, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. Now remember, over and over again in Acts, what do we see the Jews accused of? They're accused of killing Jesus. And do you remember what they said in the Gospels? Pilate says, hey, I don't want this guy's blood on my hands. I'm washing my hands of this. They said, his blood will be on us and our children. And so Paul's coming to them. He said, you killed Christ. I'm telling you who he is. Repent and believe the Gospel. And they're slandering Paul. They're opposing him, uprising against him. And he says, your blood be on yourself. I am innocent. And then it says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, we've seen this a couple times from Paul. We've seen where the Jews make Paul upset. They reject Paul. And Paul says, I'm, I'm done with the Jews. I'm just going to go on to the Gentiles. And yet, we don't actually see Paul stop preaching to the Jews. In fact, look at the next verse. It says, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was where? Next door to the synagogue. So Paul's not doing a great job of saying that he's done with the Jews. If he's going to stay next door to the synagogue, and then look at the next verse. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So Paul says, I'm done with the Jews. I'm not going to witness to them anymore. Where does he go? Next to the synagogue. Who does he lead to the Lord? The ruler of the synagogue. So what do I think Paul means by that? I don't think it means that he's done witnessing to all Jews anywhere. He has a special priority for them. It could mean that he's just done witnessing to this specific group of Jews, maybe that specific synagogue. He said to them, especially those who are rejecting Paul, I'm done with you. You've rejected the gospel. I'm turning on to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were an emphasis of Paul's ministry, but we actually won't ever stop seeing Paul witness to the Jews. So we see in verse 7, he goes to this man named Titius Justus. He was a Gentile believer who worshiped God as a Jew. He gets saved and now worships God as a Christian. And then in verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, also believes in the Lord with his household. So these two people, a Jew and a Gentile, are saved. This shows the complexion of the Corinthian church. Jewish people, Gentile people, all are saved, all become one in Christ. And notice, notice also, it says, in, in many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, were baptized. So we see they are saved, they believe in God, and they're baptized. And we see here that God has control 
over the people that Paul is sharing the gospel with. Now, not all of them responded like Paul wanted them to. Some of them reviled Paul, slandered Paul, wanted to go in a different direction. And there's going to be times where we're witnessing to people and they're not going to want to listen to what we have to say either. They're going to make fun of us. They're going to have a different opinion on how they should live their life, but that's okay. We can only share the gospel with, we can only serve the people that God has given us to serve. I've heard pastors say this on different Facebook groups I'm in. They'll say, ministry is great except for the people, which doesn't really make any sense because serving people, doing ministry is serving people, right? We see here that God has given Paul a specific group of people, both Jews and Gentiles, to share the gospel with. Some of them believe, they hear the word of God, they're saved. And we see this church starting to grow in Corinth, which will be an important church. And some reject Paul. Now, as we see some reject Paul, we're tempted to think, well, Paul just let it roll off his shoulder. He didn't pay any attention to it. Paul is a strong man who stands firm for God. He never loses confidence. Well, look with me at verses 9 through 11. As we secondly see that God not only controls the people of our ministry, he also controls the scope of our ministry. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. Now why does God say this to Paul? We always see Paul as this confident person, this forward person, this person who has such confidence in God, who defends the faith I think Paul sometimes had fear and had doubt. Don't look at Paul and think, oh, he's not like us. Yes, he is like us. There are times where fear can overcome us. We can wonder, is this what God has for us? Should we go somewhere else? Remember that we can trust in the Lord. And so God, in a vision, speaks to Paul. He says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. And why does he tell Paul not to fear? Well, look at this verse. It says, go on speaking. Do not be silent. Continue your ministry. First of all, the first reason is, for I am with you. Sometimes when you're doing God's will, when you're serving him like he wants you to, when you go where God wants you to go, it can feel lonely. It can feel like no one else is with you, like you're doing everything on your own, like you have no one to support you. Sometimes as we talk about the gospel here in church, as we speak on it in Sunday school and in the morning service and in Bible studies, it all makes sense. Everyone believes the same thing. Everyone agrees. But then you go to share the gospel with someone else and you're by yourself and there's no one there and you think, this sounds crazy. No one is going to believe what I have to say. But even when you're by yourself, even when there is no one else there, God is with you. God is there. He will help you. He will strengthen you. He says, I am with you. No one will attack you and harm you. Now, we don't necessarily see God promise this to Paul in other cities. In fact, we've seen Paul beaten. We've seen him thrown in prison. In fact, at one city, he was stoned to the point where people thought he was dead. They stopped stoning him because they thought he was dead. And what did Paul do? He got up and just went to the next town. But God says here that no one is going to harm him. He gives him this assurance. As I mentioned earlier, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, there's many challenges, there's many hardships here. There's fighting, there's people who were attacking Paul 
and questioning his discipleship. There's all these different problems swirling around the city. But God says, I'm with you. No one here is going to harm you. And so he wants him to stay in the city. And where we've seen Paul go from city to city to city preaching the gospel, he probably at this point would have been tempted to move on. But God says, no, stay. And look at what else he says. He says, for I have many in the city who are my people. Now, this could just mean that there's a lot of Christians already there. But I think it's also referring to the fact that there are many there who would receive the Lord and be saved and accept Christ as their Savior. So his other encouragement to Paul is that there would be people there that would be saved, that would hear the word of God. And so what does Paul do? It says, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Paul ends up being here for a substantial amount of time on this second missionary journey. Now, why does he do that? I think it's because he finds his confidence in God. God tells him not to fear and he stays on the right path. One of the hobbies that I've come to enjoy in the last couple of years is kayaking or canoeing. Now, this may shock you, but I don't do great at keeping my balance. Sometimes I can become a little bit off balance. When I was first learning how to kayak, I went with one of my friends who's going to be in my wedding, and he told me, he said, don't shake around, but just try to make really small movements. Now, that's hard for me because I'm a big guy and everything I do is big. And I can remember we were in the middle of the lake. This always happens to me when I'm in the middle of the lake. I'm not by the shore. There's huge winds that are starting to just blow and kind of move the kayak around. And what do I start to do? I start to fear. I start to panic, shake. I'm moving the kayak around. And he paddles over to me and just tries to hold me still. And he said, just don't move. Just be still. And when I did that, the kayak stopped moving. I was able to slowly paddle my way back to shore. Sometimes when we face the challenges of life, when we let fear and doubt and anxiety set in, we start to panic. We start to worry and we become ramped up. And sometimes you can feel this. You can become so absorbed in your own thoughts and emotions that you start to spiral and you think, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what God has for me. And you start to panic and fear when you just need to stop and trust in the Lord. You can trust in God that God has you where you are for a reason. Paul was not free from fear and discouragement. I think this is a clear example that Paul was starting to fear and doubt if this is where God had him. And Paul says, and God says, I don't want you to leave. And Paul stays there for a year and a half. And this church of Corinth is built up because of it. Let's not only see that God controls the scope of our ministry. He also controls the circumstances of our ministry as well. Look with me at verse 12. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. We're not exactly sure when this happened. It happened somewhere in his year and a half ministry there, maybe towards the end. But again, we're not sure. This Galileo was proconsul of Achaia. There's some different things you can read about him in archaeology and in history. He was somewhat of a prominent figure. And it does point to the fact that this event actually happened. Scripture is backed up by history, by archaeology. This was a real person. And these events happened here in Corinth, just like the rest of the word of God. We see that there was another proconsul in Acts 13. These were governors of certain regions. They had control over these regions. He was a proconsul of Achaia. 
we notice that there's a ramp up in persecution. So all these Jews are starting to attack Paul, persecute him. And look at that word. It says they made a united attack. The word means of one accord, homothuladon. We actually see it used of the church. The believers were gathered in one accord, united together. We've seen that several times in Acts. Now we see the Jews are united in one accord against Paul. And they're bringing this complaint to Galileo, the proconsul, And it says before the tribunal, the word, the Greek word that's used there is bima. It's actually the bima seat. Now you might have heard of the bima seat before. It's actually used for the judgment seat of God. That one day believers will stand before God and he will judge them. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's a seat we go before God and we are judged. This is where we get that word from, the bema seat. And that actually means a tribunal. It's where Galileo was and where he would listen to people bring their complaints before him. Now notice what they said. They said, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. <clears throat> this is important why they phrase their complaint against Paul the way they do. The Romans pretty much lumped Jews and Christians into the same boat. And they allowed for Judaism because the Jews were a powerful people, were a strong nation, and they didn't want an uprising from them. But they did not allow for these new false religions to come up that were not already recognized by Rome. And so what the Jews are saying is, hey, these Christians that believe in God, that are worshiping God, that say Jesus is the Christ, they're worshiping God in a way that is not consistent with Judaism. They're actually trying to run Paul out of town. They're trying to get him out of Corinth and say that Christianity was not an endorsed religion from Rome. This actually had a lot of potential to be devastating for the church there. If Christianity would have been outlawed, Paul probably would have had to leave Corinth. The church there would have faced heavy persecution from the Romans. The Jews would have felt like they had the upper hand on the Christians who were there. It would have spelled a lot of problems for them. And so Paul needs to have a strong response. Paul probably in his head as he's sitting there in this tribunal, he's thinking, how am I going to defend the gospel? What am I going to say that's not only going to stand up for Christian rights, but also maybe share the gospel with Galileo? And right as he begins to speak, right as he's about to say everything he's going to say, he's interrupted. Look at what it says in the next verse. This man is, actually it says, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be the judge of these things. So Paul's about ready to speak, and Galileo cuts him off. It's probably because he didn't want to hear what the Jews had to say. He didn't want to hear what Paul has to say. He says, This is what I have to say. And as he begins speaking, he says if Paul had actually done anything wrong, if he'd done any kind of wrongdoing, and he uses a couple words here, they refer to evil, villainy, crookedness. If Paul had done anything that was actually morally wrong or even opposed to the Roman law, Galileo says, I would have taken care of it. I would have ran Paul out of town. He probably would have been in prison. That's not what was going on here. It says in verse 15, he says, but this is a matter of questions about words 
and names and your own law. Words probably refer to the scriptures. He says, this is from your own teachings and your own scriptures. He hears Christianity, hears the Jewish people, and he says, these, these aren't necessarily different. But in his mind, the Jews and the Christians were the same. Now, we obviously know that Christians are different from Jewish people. But why is that? Because Christ was promised in the Old Testament, and we see him fulfilled in the New Testament. And so it was actually a, not discontinuity, but in continuity with what the Jewish people believed. But they believed that Christ was coming, and that Christ had already come. And so what Galileo is saying, he says, Jewish people, Christian people, they're all the same. There's no difference here. He says, since it's a matter of your words and names and your own law... See to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Not only does he say he doesn't have time for it, he doesn't have any time to deal with these Jewish matters, it would also have been very dangerous for him to get involved in the Jewish matters as well. We see this with Pilate. Pilate really didn't want to be the judge of Jesus when Jesus was killed. But what was he afraid of? He was afraid there was going to be an uprising against the Roman authorities there. And so he did take care of it. But the Roman officials as a whole did not want to interfere with the Jews. In fact, they let them have the temple. They let them have the synagogues. They gave them quite a bit of leeway. And why was that? Because the Jews were such a volatile people. So he says, I refuse to be the judge of these things. Look at the fallout from this. It says, and he drove them from the tribunal. So he kicks them out. And look what happens after that. It says, And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to this. This is a pretty negative view of Roman rule here. Sosthenes, if I can say his name right, probably became the leader of the synagogue, the leader of the Jewish synagogue there, after after Crispus was saved. So Crispus was the old leader of the synagogue. Because he became a Christian, he couldn't continue being that. So this Sosthenes became the leader of the synagogue. He was probably the leader of the attack against Paul and led this opposition against him. And so who beat him? What was these Gentile people? It was the rulers of Corinth that beat him in front of the rest of the tribunal. And what does Galileo do? He says, I'm not going to pay any attention to that. He just turns the other way. He doesn't want, want to even know what is going on. And sometimes if you've ever watched kids or been in charge of kids, sometimes you see what they're doing and you think, I just wish I really hadn't seen that. I wish I hadn't paid any attention to that. That's for their parents to deal with or someone else to try to figure out. We see that with Galileo. He says, I probably, he thinks I probably should do something, but he's just going to pretend like he's ignoring it and not seeing what is going on. And what does this show us? There was a lot of tension between the Jews and the Gentiles there. The Jewish people are uprising against Paul. And what do the Gentiles do? They take Paul's side, but they go too far. Paul didn't say you should go beat up the synagogue ruler. But they decided to go and do that on their own. And it shows just how much tension there was between the Jewish people and the Gentile people. And I think it also highlights this, that as Christians, there's no Jews or Greeks, but we're one in Christ. In a city where the race and ethnicity is so divided between Jews and Gentiles, the church in Corinth was a place where both could come, both could worship God, both could be united as the church.
That's what's so amazing about the church. It's the only place where people can come, and no matter what your background is, no matter where you come from, no matter how you were raised, no matter your financial status, we are one, we are equal in Christ. The churches then attracted a lot of slaves, attracted a lot of people who were of low income and poverty because it actually gave them rights. It gave them the opportunity to be seen as equal. And so thousands of slaves joined the Christian movement because they finally had value and worth to their lives. So we see that the Jews beat this synagogue, or the Gentiles beat this synagogue ruler at the end of Paul's time in the tribunal. Now look at verse 18. It says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers. This allows Paul to stay in the city. This allows the church to thrive and flourish in the city. They don't have to worry about persecution or anything happening there. This all happens according to the will of God. But there was opportunity for Paul to fear. There's opportunity for Paul to wonder what is going on. He'd faced so much opposition from them. He probably did not think that the tribunal was going to end up working out that way. But what had God said to Paul? He said, don't be afraid. I'm not going to let anyone harm you. Now, maybe that promise wasn't as easy to hear as he's in front of a tribunal who literally beats someone up right after Paul leaves. Maybe that was a little bit harder for him to hear, but he still trusted God and he didn't fear. Sometimes we can question God's will. We can question how God's leading. Maybe God made a mistake. We think maybe God doesn't see all of our situation. One of my favorite missionary stories is the story of Amy Carmichael. As a young girl, she wished she would have had blue eyes instead of brown. She tells the story how she thinks God made a mistake, how she thought God needed to give her blue eyes instead of brown eyes. And then as she grew up at age 20, she became a missionary to India and realized later that the people of India probably wouldn't have let her into the country had she been born with blue eyes instead of brown eyes. And so she looks back in some of her missionary biographies and she thanks God for making her just the way she was because God in his sovereignty allowed her to share the gospel with those people. We see in Paul's life, the circumstances God put into his life, even being opposed by these Jews, it wasn't fun. It wasn't something he wanted to go through. And at times he probably thought, why am I facing so much opposition? But actually the opposition that Paul faced, the Jewish people opposing Paul and saying, we got to go to Galileo about this and bringing him before the council secures the church in Corinth, allows them to flourish, allows them not to face more persecution. And for us, sometimes God gives us circumstances that we cannot expect, things that come up in life that we just could not imagine, things that are hard, that are difficult, or sometimes just not bad or good. They're just unexpected. And we don't know what God is going to do. As I'm young, as I'm thinking about getting married, it's exciting for Alicia and I to think, what, are, what is our life going to be together? How many kids do we want to have? All these different questions that we face. And the truth is, we have no idea what's going to happen. God is probably going to put circumstances and different things into our lives that are just beyond what we could ever imagine. But what can we go back to? We can go back to verses 9 and 10. We don't have to be afraid because God is with us no matter what we're doing. 
God is in control of the people that we're sharing the gospel with, that we're ministering to. He's in control of the scope of our ministry, where he has us, what he's having us do. He's in control of the circumstances of our ministry, the things that pop up, things that scare us, things that cause us to fear. And lastly, I want us to see God is in control of the path of our ministry. As we've looked at this map several times on the second missionary journey, we see that it kind of goes all over the place. Paul wants at the beginning of his missionary journey, he wants to go into Asia and Bithynia. But God says, actually, I don't want you to go there. I'm going to have you go up north and then go into Macedonia. And so he does this loop around and Paul is led by the spirit to go to these different cities that we've seen in the second missionary journey. All because of what? Because of the fact that God controls the path of our ministry. So Paul stays in Corinth a little longer. And then it says he sets sail for Syria with Aquila and Priscilla. Now notice it says at the end of verse 18, at, I'm going to try to say this right, Sinchakri, he had cut his hair for he is under vow. Now what is this talking about? Paul cutting his hair, he was under vow. Most scholars think that he was under a Nazarite vow. This is what Samson was under. But you didn't have to be a Nazarite for life. You could actually be a Nazarite for a specific amount of time. And what you did was you would grow your hair out. You wouldn't touch anything that was dead. You wouldn't drink any wine. And I believe there's a third thing that I have here. You, wouldn't, you would grow your hair out, abstain from things that are dead, abstain from wine. Yes. Then your hair would be cut and offered as a sacrifice to God. You would cut your hair, bring it to Jerusalem, and you would have a burnt offering that you would give up to the Lord as a sign of devotion to him. Now, I think this was a Nazarite vow that Paul did. It makes the most sense. The question is, why did Paul take a Nazarite vow? Some people think he might have had this for his entire second missionary journey. Some think he started making this vow to God when he was afraid And when God spoke to Paul, and when God saved Paul from his trouble, Paul, as a sign of thanksgiving to God, grew out his hair and took this Nazarite vow to thank the Lord for what he has done. Now, does that mean that you and I have to take a Nazarite vow, and do I need to grow my hair out and then cut it and offer it as a sacrifice before God? Well, no. Why is that? Because I'm not a Jew by ethnicity. That's not something that I practice. But Paul was. Paul was a Christian, yes, but he grew up as a Jewish person. And he still had different practices that he would have as a Jew. That doesn't mean all Christians have to practice Jewish practices. But it was part of Paul's heritage. And so we see him take this Nazarite vow as a sign of devotion to God. I think even as a sign of thankfulness to God for what God had done in his life. So he cuts his hair at at Syncachary where the seaport was. And he's going to take it back to Jerusalem. You can see on the map he does end up going back to Jerusalem before he goes to Antioch. I think while he was there, he offers his hair as a sacrifice to God. Look at verse 19. And when they came to Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So Aquila and Priscilla are left in Ephesus. They're going to be here for a while because they had ministry to do. Where does Paul go? Back to the synagogue, back to the Jews. But he said earlier that he was done with the Jews. Well, he was done with the Jews in Corinth. But he wasn't done with the Jews as a nation. He keeps going back. He keeps sharing the gospel with them. He reasons with them. And look what happens. It says, And when they asked him to stay, 
So the people in Ephesus want Paul to stay. And I said this a couple weeks ago. I think Paul always wanted to go to Ephesus, but it wasn't where God had led him. Remember, God led him away from Asia at the beginning of his missionary journey. Paul says that he has to go. He says, I will return to you if God wills. So Paul wants to go to Ephesus. He wants to stay in Ephesus, but it's all up to what? It's up to the will of the Lord. God was going to lead Paul where he was. But Paul knew he needed to come back. He needed to make his offering to God. He needed to go update the churches in Antioch and in Jerusalem. So he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. And it says he set sail from Ephesus. Look at verse 22. And when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So God keeps Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus. He's kept Timothy and Silas in Macedonia. And he's spreading Paul's missionary team out to all do the work of the ministry. Paul goes back to Caesarea into Antioch and I think also Jerusalem during this time for the purpose of updating these churches and encouraging these churches. I've said this before about Paul. One of the great things about Paul and his missionary journey that we can take is that he doesn't just share the gospel with people and leave. He doesn't just share the gospel with someone and leave them on their own. Now, sometimes that happens just based on circumstances. But what was the pattern of Paul is that he would share the gospel and start a church, and then he would come back around and strengthen them again. He would come back around and strengthen them again. Where was Galatia and Phrygia? This was the area where Paul went on his first missionary journey. As he started his second missionary journey, what did he do? He goes back there and he strengthens them and disciples them and helps them grow. As he ends his second missionary journey, what does he do? He goes back there and strengthens them and helps them grow. This was the pattern of Paul. And this should be an encouragement to us as well. That as we witness to people, as we share the gospel with them, we can't just leave them hanging. We can't just let think that they're going to understand everything that has taken us years to understand as Christians right when they're saved. But we have to go back and encourage them and strengthen them and go back and disciple them and help them grow. This was the pattern of Paul. This should be the pattern of us as well. And this brings Paul's second missionary journey to an end. And next week we'll look at Paul's start to his third missionary journey, which is much different than the first two because there's a lot of different circumstances that happen. But Paul on his second missionary journey goes to all of these different cities around Asia and Macedonia and even Greece. And it's a reminder to us that God controls the path of our ministry. He controls where we go. He controls what we do. Paul allowed the Spirit of God to guide him and lead him. Now, sometimes the Spirit of God would speak to Paul in visions. I don't think that's necessarily how the Spirit of God speaks to us today. But we can depend on God to lead and guide us where he would have us go. So as this second missionary journey comes to a close, as we see Paul wrap up his time there in Corinth and then go back, I'm reminded of just all the different cities we've looked at where Paul went and how God led Paul and strengthened Paul through each one of them. So as a conclusion to our sermon this morning, I want us to think about lessons from Paul's second missionary journey. As we wrap up this missionary trip that Paul took, 
from Antioch all the way around that region back to Antioch, I want us to see some lessons we can learn from how God led in Paul's life. First of all, we see that Paul went to Galatia and Troas. Galatia, he was strengthening the churches there. Troas, he went to. Why? Because he was not able to go to Asia. And I think we see this. We see that God directs the path of our ministry. It's what I just said. Sometimes God tells us to go somewhere and we think, I don't want to go there. Sometimes God tells us we can't go somewhere. It's where we actually wanted to go. That Paul had a good reason probably to go to Asia. He wanted to share the gospel there, but God said it was not in his timing. Now, how does God direct our path in ministry? Like I said, I don't think he necessarily gives us visions. Sometimes the circumstances of life, sometimes the leading of God and life through our circumstances, through even our desires, but through prayer and submitting to his will, are going to show us where he would have us to go. And we're reminded of this. Sometimes God directs the path of where he would have us go, even in ministry. Sometimes I can even remember times in my life where I'm so stubborn and I'm holding on to, I want to do this thing, I want to go to this place, and just circumstances, things come up in life where God just says, you just can't go there, you can't do that, you have to surrender to God's will. We see that God directs the path of our ministry. Secondly, Paul goes to Philippi, and we see that God is more powerful than people, demons, and government. While Paul is in Philippi, he witnesses to Lydia, the seller of purple, who is a prominent woman. He casts a demon out of a woman who is there, a slave girl. And he's thrown into prison, and he's freed by an earthquake. And it's all a demonstration of God's power. That God is more powerful than the powerful people we can meet, the demons that we might face, the evil forces that are there, and even the government as well. When evil government is forcing its way against Paul. We can be reminded of this, that sometimes there are times in life where we can become afraid. We can think, what is the government doing? What is the world doing? It's so difficult to be a Christian, and we can lose hope. But Paul didn't lose hope. He had confidence in God. He knew that God was more powerful than any other force that he was going to face. In Thessalonica, we see that the word of God brings transformation. The word of God brings transformation. As Paul spoke the word to them, as he reasoned from the scriptures, they said what? What did they say about him? They said he was turning the world upside down. Paul was transforming the culture of a city there through the word of God. And we're reminded of this, that nothing I say is worth value if it's not from God's word. I might have a funny story. I might have a clever saying, but it doesn't matter what I say if it does not come from the word of God. It's the word of God that brings transformation. In Berea, we see that the scriptures confirm Christ. As Paul goes there to the city of Berea, it says they were more excellent than the Jews in Thessalonica because they read the scriptures to see if these things were so. Sometimes people bring up contradictions to the Bible, arguments against the Bible. We can become afraid and we can think we have nothing to answer them with. The word of God confirms itself. I said this at the beginning of the sermon. It's been here for thousands of years. It's going to be here long after you and I die. The word of God stands as truth. Last week we saw in Athens that we must defend the gospel. Paul was doing apologetics there. He was defending the truth, standing up for God's word, sharing the gospel, 
And we must do the same thing as well. We must be bold. Now, God may not have us as people who might be in a debate or writing a book or doing something along those lines, but we must defend the gospel. And then in Corinth, we see that we can have confidence in God as we serve him. We can have confidence that knowing whatever circumstances, challenges, trials that God puts in our lives, we can trust him and know that he is faithful to keep us and to help us endure no matter what life throws at us. So we're wrapping up Paul's second missionary journey. That's just a review, reminder of some of the lessons we've learned as Paul's traveled. Pray that as we continue to study through the book of Acts, we'd be encouraged and strengthened to have confidence in God no matter what life throws at us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant Paul and his example to us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to trust you, that as life gets hard, we wouldn't fear, we wouldn't doubt, that we would find our confidence in you, knowing that you will keep us, you will hold on to us. Sometimes life gets challenging. Sometimes we're tempted to fear, we're tempted to panic and become afraid. But we know the safest path is the path that you have us on. So help us to be calm, help us to be still and know that you are God. Help us to trust in you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.